series uh, I'm actually really excited about. Um, in Ephesians, there's this great verse that talks about, so therefore a man will leave his wife and a wife will leave her. Um, a man will leave his mother and father and a wife will leave her mother and father. I said that wrong. And join with his wife. And it says the two will become one. And then this little sentence in there, it's Ephesians 5.32, says, this is a profound mystery. And if you've been married more than two weeks... Uh, you know that it is a profound mystery understanding the way your marriage works, all right? Or understanding the other person in your marriage. Uh, and, and it isn't something that we can just solve. It isn't something that there's like easy steps to. As soon as you think you've got it figured out, everything changes, all right? And you have one kid, and then you think you've figured it out, and you have another one. And you discover you know even less than you did with the first one, right? And uh, so it is, it is a, the Bible actually talks about this being a profound mystery. And we want to uh, ask and look at how does the Bible speak to marriage? And how does it speak to our marriages? And how does it help us uh, follow Jesus in this way? So um, we want it to be more than just talks on a Sunday. Uh, we really want to encourage you to get engaged, to get connected to a community group, uh, to grab the book and read it. You can get audio books if you're not a reader. Uh, the, you can find all sorts of material online from the Real Marriage series. You can just Google it. And uh, the church that um, the Mark Driscoll is a pastor of has all sorts of resources you can available. You can watch his sermons uh, on when he preached through this series. There, we'll be talking about different things because we're not doing all 11 weeks. But uh, if, if you want want to, I really want to encourage you to engage with this. You can't expect to just sit and watch something happen and then think, oh, we're going to be great, all right? If you are married, I want to encourage you and your spouse to set aside some time every week to actually have conversations, all right, outside of your life group, if you're in a life group. Like, there will be times in that we're going to talk about something and you'll think, yeah, that's a conversation we need to have. That's kind of what we're hoping for here, okay? At the end of eight weeks, I don't think we're going to have perfect marriages in this church. I really don't, all right? Um, but I do hope that we're able to open up some lines of communication, open up, uh, open up like your experience to some ways that might work and uh, some practices that might help. If you aren't, we're going to talk all through that um, uh, in, as we talk this morning. But we don't want it to be just be a book, okay? So, if you don't follow The Grove on Facebook, I want to encourage you to, because uh, we're going to be doing contests and stuff during uh, this whole series. And this week we put up a little thing asking for honeymoon horror stories, alright? And they are outstanding, okay? Uh, and we asked people to put them up, and then we had the band actually actually were our judges and they picked which one was the best and I want to read it to you. Um, this is, so I'm on, that's what, I'm not tweeting, I'm actually, because uh, no one reads Twitter. Um, this is from Travis and Sarah Clark. Travis and I were blessed to, so if Travis and Sarah are here, you can pick up a book at the table because you won, because your story is the best. <laughs> so, and there were some other ones that were good too. Um, Travis and I were blessed to honeymoon in Hawaii. We stayed in Waikiki and spent most of our time on Waikiki Beach. Yeah, right. Most of our time. Okay. Um, <laughs> one day... One day we took our small one-person floaty bed out into deeper water where we couldn't touch anymore. And we were both using the floaty, leaned over it with the two of our bodies uh, and paddling with our feet. And in one of the waves we saw something big coming towards us. It looked like the top of a round kitchen table. I pointed it out to Travis and asked him what he thought it was. <laughs> Sorry. 
And to my surprise, he threw me off the raft. <laughs> Took it all to himself and started hightailing it back to shore. <laughs> Yelling, that's a snapping turtle. <laughs> Those things will rip your limbs off. <laughs> so it's nice to know that your new husband will take care of you in times of need. <laughs> so he realized shortly after what, we, what he had done and came back to save me too from the friendly sea turtle, not a snapping turtle, that we were blessed to get the chance to see up close. And so she ended by saying, I love that man. So that's great. So if you know Travis and Sarah, you'll appreciate that. And, uh, and that's, that'll just be an awesome time for them. So... Uh, let's pray, and uh, then I want to share my honeymoon horror story, and then we'll open up our scripture. Our God, we give you our morning together. We ask that you would speak to us, speak to our hearts, and just reveal uh, where you would like to work in us, and uh, that we would, um, that you would actually take out our, our hard heart and give us the soft heart uh, to respond to your word and respond to what you may want to do in our lives. Uh, Jesus, we thank you uh, for giving us each other and uh, for allowing us to live in community. In your name, amen. So, um, my wife and I got married uh, in 1999, and uh, it might have been, it was my favorite wedding I've ever been to, and uh, it, it really was. It's mostly a blur. I didn't get to dance with my wife hardly at all, um, but uh, we uh, had this, it, it's a different traditions in different places, and where we lived, uh, you have dinners and, and dancing and things like that, and, and uh, we went to our first wedding in the South, and we didn't eat beforehand because we were excited, and they don't eat at weddings in the South, apparently, uh, so we went out after, and we also wore suits because that's what you wear when you live in Canada, uh, and like here you go to a wedding in your shorts and a t-shirt because it's the middle of afternoon on Saturday and you're, you know, it's bugging you that you have to stop doing yard work, uh, so... <laughs> In Canada, it's a, it's a three-piece affair kind of thing. So we have this it's just amazing wedding. And it was so, so, so fantastic. And we got, uh, we left after midnight. The, the wait staff let us party for an extra hour because it was kind of a good time. And they were having a good time. And, uh, and so we went to our hotel in downtown Toronto. And uh, my wife didn't have her change of clothes. You know, you're supposed to change your I had to change out of mine because they were rental gear that were due the next day. But so we walk into the lobby and her big dress and everything and I'm like yeah I'm that guy you know and it was, it was kind of a cool moment for me but um, I'm very tall and so my wife had really high heels and so she needed some new shoes and so within, you know the next day I went down we stayed in, right down close to this uh, big mall in Toronto the biggest mall in Toronto and so I go down into this mall to get some shoes now Toronto um, next to San Francisco has the highest concentration of uh, alternative lifestyles of gay and lesbian uh, people living there and we got married the weekend before their pride weekend festivities and so the people who had arrived early uh, were there and it was beginning and we're downtown and it's kind of a fun festive time to be there and this is 15 years ago too so it's not the way culture is today and uh, so I go downstairs and I'm a large dude and I walk into Lady Foot Locker and I <laughs> see some tennis shoes that I like and I say to the man uh you know, I like those. Uh, can you get me a pair of those in size nine? And he looks at me. Trust me, I'm not wearing a size nine, right? And uh, or whatever size I was. But uh, so he looks at me, and I'm like, 
what you know like and and he apparently did not think that this was an appropriate interaction and he went to the back of the store and uh, turned around and waited to help on someone else <laughs> never got me my shoes uh, so he, you know like it's funny <laughs> so, so I'm standing there in Lady Foot Locker staring at shoes and I look over and the dude's helping someone else and I'm like so apparently I'm not allowed to buy women's shoes so I actually went and bought a pair of unisex flip flops uh, at, at, another, at a boy store and we wore those unisex flip flops back to the, another store so that we could actually buy the shoes so that's my great embarrassing story but um, the and there were no snapping turtles so it's not as good but if you have a Bible um, we're going to start in Genesis chapter 2. At the very beginning of Scripture, God sets up man and woman in a marriage. Uh, and so we're going to talk about uh, that marriage. And we're going to talk about having uh, developing your marriage in that context. Because when the first marriage began, it was developed in a, in a world that didn't have sin. In a world where no one had ever done anything wrong, there was no hurt, no pain, no jealousy, no shame, no insecurity. Uh, it was just perfect. And uh, this is the way Genesis uh, chapter 2 um, finishes up. I'm going to read from verse 18. You can read it on the screen if you don't have a Bible. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them and whatever the man called every living creature that was its name and the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Some Bibles say, and cleave to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Which is proof there from Eugene. God's intent <laughs> for marriage... So, God's intent for marriage, when God set it up, was uh, for people not to live alone. In at, when he looked at Adam, and Adam's in the garden, there's no sin, no shame, there's nothing wrong with the world. The first thing that God points out is not good, is that Adam is alone. And for us to be alone, isolated as an individual, the Bible recognizes right from the beginning is not good. And there's nothing, all, of all the living things on earth, there's nothing that gives us the relationship of another human being. And so God creates woman. You see, it's not good, even in a sinless world, even in a perfect world, where nothing had ever, like the words not good, had never been said, had never been uttered. Everything tasted perfect. Everything was cooperative. It was a perfect temperature all the time. Like everything, everything was good. And then for the first time ever, God uses the word not good. It is not good for the man to be alone. And so woman, or Eve, was given as a gift 
to Adam when he was alone. Now that doesn't mean that the woman is a gift to the man. Uh, and you can spin this depending on if you're a chauvinist or a feminist, right? Um, that the man couldn't survive without us. Woo, right? But if we could get past our prejudices and just look at the fact that the woman and the man were made for each other and in need of each other, and that was evident in a sinless world, in a perfect world, in a world where nothing had ever gone wrong, it was better for them to be together. And then, as after Adam gets over his excitement, therefore, uh, it says, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and they had no concept of this either, there had never been such thing as a father and a mother, but therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the Bible describes them as one. This is the profound mystery. Two people in a marriage context become one person. And it's not, um, it's not something that we can just understand easily. But when you look, if you've ever met a couple that have been married, there was a couple at a church I used to go to, they've been married 75 years when I went there. And as far as I know, they're both still alive. Uh, so it must be getting close to 80 years by now. And they're just married and they become more and more more and more one. If you ever talk, uh, it's, it's sometimes very, very depressing if you talk to an older couple, if you're young and you get this older couple and you're like, and they, they hear them say, I think I'm starting to understand what it means to really love someone. And they've been married like 30 or 40 years. And it's just like, come on, right? I've been married for three weeks and I can't, like, I can't get them to shut the shower curtain, you know? <laughs> it, it is a... Uh, it's, it gets a little depressing if you're on the front end of that. But it's so encouraging when you see uh, the people, or you see people who've had uh, the blessing of God and the grace in their life, to be able to stick together and stick it out like that. And then we start to understand that mystery and start to see, yeah, we can see that oneness. We can see that thing developing. So in this perfect world, there's this perfect marriage where this perfect couple is one. And then we have Genesis chapter 3. The serpent, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? 
And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The very first victim of sin is a marriage. The very first thing that sin attacked when it entered the world was this perfect marriage in a perfect world with a perfect couple. And you go to a wedding and you see this perfect looking couple at a perfect wedding in a perfect day and the first thing that's going to hurt them is the sin that they carry or the sin that they commit. Because that's the first thing that sin hurts. So there's this sin that happens when Eve disobeys God. God says, don't eat from that tree. She eats from the tree. And when she does so, and Adam does so as well, and depending on your prejudice, you can say whatever you want to say there. The truth is they both ate of that fruit. Their eyes are opened and shame enters the world. Insecurity enters the world. All of a sudden they're like, I need to get some clothes. <laughs> now, when we get to heaven and they have the Bible on like DVD or Blu-ray, I'm watching this one. Because I'd love to see that. They're eating and they look down. Oh snap, right? <laughs> For the first time ever they're like, uh, covering themselves. They're like, I've only got one hand now to, I'm holding this apple. And, and it was probably good, so they probably wanted more. And as they ate more, they probably noticed they were also out of shape, right? And because exercise hadn't been developed. And so they're just like, this moment of embarrassment and terror and awkwardness for the very first time. And while it's funny, it, everything falls apart right afterwards. Everything that was perfect, all of a sudden isn't. They covered their vulnerability. All of a sudden they can't be around each other and be naked. They actually sew fig leaves together somehow. And, and they must have had to, like, it, that doesn't happen instantly. So there's a time period here where they're going, what did I do? How did I mess this up? Why did I let this happen? And then they hear God walking and they hide from God. And Adam actually expresses fear. I heard you walking and I was afraid. For the first time ever in human history, there's fear. I'm scared of something. Before this, they would walk around with God in the cool of the day, naked. And nobody thought anything of it. And now they're hiding in a bush, wearing leaves, hoping that God doesn't see them. Nobody's ever hid before either, so they probably sucked at it. Right? <laughs> there is this kind of um, crumbling that happens so quickly. And this marriage just falls apart to the point where their kids murder each other. Like the effect of sin on a marriage is so devastating 
that it destroys everything that this marriage was originally built in. Everything. Some of you might be in that experience right now. Where sin is destroyed. Everything. And you know this isn't just something I'm talking about, but this is real. This blames thing starts right away. Where God says, what did you do? Adam's first words. First words. The woman. Like, come on. It's not only a sin to make excuses, but it's a sin to start blaming your wife for your excuses. Just so you know, God, I'm not the leader here either. <laughs> the one that you gave me. Man. I mean, what did Adam think at that moment? He's going to get off? Like, all right, Adam, I know. That woman. Right? Come on. And, and then God turns to the woman. The woman's like, that serpent. Oh, I feel like, can't blame me. It's the devil. I mean, do they think God's going to go, all right, guys. You know, I'm a just and holy God, but I'm going to let this one go. No, and that isn't what happens. In any relationship, if someone sins against you, it's real. And it changes things. And forgiveness is real as well. But, I mean, we can forgive and forget. But things sometimes change. And we don't ever go back to what we had. Because you can't get back to what you had. I actually think trying to get back to what you had is like a, a false endeavor. It's impossible. You, can't, you can try to go back to that thing, but you can't. You never will. Because it's not there anymore. See, this perfect world with this perfect couple all of a sudden had something very, very imperfect in it. And once you've had imperfect, you don't get to go back. Once you've sinned, you're no longer that perfect husband or that perfect wife. If you've been married more than two hours, you're there already, right? <laughs> if you're engaged and you're planning a wedding, you're there already, right? <laughs> it is. We don't claim to be sinless. But we can't claim that sin isn't real either. And we can't claim that our shortcomings don't affect the relationships that we carry. Here's the good news. Um, the good news is always Jesus. This is 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. I'm going to read this to you. It'll be on the screen as well. Listen to this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling, excuse me, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, excuse me, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Some of you were talking about marriage, and you're thinking, 
you know what I need? A new marriage. Because if I had a new marriage, this wouldn't suck so much. And what you don't need is a new spouse. A lot of people here think new marriage, and the way to get that new marriage is new spouse. But what we want to do, and what we want to talk about is that new marriage with the same spouse. Because we think, in our world, that when there's sin, and when there's failings, and when there's shortcomings, that it's over. It's devastating. And that's true, except for the great news of Jesus. Except for the reality that anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. And this happens through God's forgiveness. Do you see this? That all of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. You see, we sin against God, like Adam and Eve sin against God. And then God does all of the work in restoring that relationship. Do you catch that? God perfect, us not. Who's doing all the work? God. In fact, what we think is, we use the word religion to describe the work that men and women do to try to reconcile with God. When God says, I've done all the work. This is why religion can't save you. Because God saved us. Through Christ, he reconciled us to himself. We sin. God does all the work to restore the relationship that has been broken. Then, right after this it says, then he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting the message of reconciliation. Then, God gives us the ministry of reconciliation to others, which means others sin against us. We do all the work of restoring that relationship. It doesn't seem to make sense, does it? Like, if someone sins against me, they should have to pay a price and earn it back. When what God seems to say here is that the ministry of reconciliation is... They sin against you and you do the hard work of forgiving and restoring that relationship. And it's hard work. It's hard work to admit that you're married to someone who's not perfect. Isn't it? Because there's the danger that they might realize it too. <laughs> I mean, I'm not married to someone perfect, but God certainly blessed my spouse. <laughs> try that on <laughs> next time you go out with your girlfriends or your buddies be like guys <laughs> my wife is a lucky man <laughs> I actually had a group of guys we hung out with we were called the lucky wives club because we all had lucky wives to have us it was sarcastic <laughs> so you know <laughs> but we really when we start admitting that our partner or any relationship has failings, then we have to admit that we need to do the work to love them as they are in their failings. That means when God says to us, 
God doesn't say, I'm going to love you when you get this thing together. God says, I love you and let's get this thing together. Are you catching that? And so when we have relationships as Christians, our only action towards people is, I love you and let's get this thing together. Not, let's get it together and then we'll love you. This is why we don't say you need to get your act together and then come to church. We hope that there are people who feel comfortable in their mess of a life because we love and then God puts things back together for us. We don't work harder to impress God. We don't try to develop ourselves so that we'll be acceptable to God. We are acceptable because God has decided we are. How's that for great news? Now, that's not the kind of thing you want to put on a Valentine's card. I love you even though you're terrible. Right? <laughs> Maybe I love you even though I'm terrible <laughs> would be a little better card. So what's the... You ask what's the meaning then of your, of your marriage? And some of us are married. We'll talk about this in a second. Some of us are married. Some of us aren't. But we'll talk about that. Some, most marriages start out really, really great. Most. Alright? I've been to a lot of weddings. And I've uh, done a lot of weddings. And there's a lot where I had a lot of hope. And there's a lot where I was like, I'm watching this. You know? Like how you watch a NASCAR race for the crashes. <laughs> and you're like... <laughs> And you're just kind of like, I don't know how this is going to work. And, uh, uh, some, of, some marriages are so calm. And some marriages are like awesome. <laughs> because it's like watching fireworks. <laughs> and it is, and it doesn't, I don't think that means they love each other less or something. Like you put two boisterous two people together, I want to live next to them, right? I don't need cable. I can just listen to what's going on. As opposed to if, you li- if you're married or, and you get two calm people and are married, it's like, it's really relaxing. You go over to their house and it's chill, you know? Like, uh, I like hanging out with those people too, but for a different reason. <laughs> but when we get together and we're married, most of the time it starts out really, really great. And eventually, it's not really, really great. It just is. And sometimes it goes terrible. turns into a war, right? It turns into this huge battle. Where instead of supporting each other, you've picked the one person that you're competing against for the rest of your life. The one person you're going to be angry with and hate and fight. It's terrible. Most marriages, I find though, settle into a good mediocrity. There's not too much joy. There's no terrible sins just kind of riding this rut to eternity. Put that in your Valentine's card. <laughs> and you're just kind of... <laughs> I know it's not your marriage, but those other people you know, we settle in and we end up in this mediocrity that we're just kind of there. And you're almost roommates. And, and, and everything might be fine. But when you signed up for life, did you hope your life would be fine? See, I actually think 
that a mediocre marriage is actually sinful. And you can disagree with me if you want to. The Bible describes God by describing, describes God's relationship with his church in terms of marriage. It calls Christ the groom and the church is his bride. And it describes the, the great end of the world as a wedding feast when the bride and the groom are together forever. That's what we call heaven. And then, so when we have marriages, it's the, the metaphor that God chose to describe his relationship to humanity, to his church. And if our marriage is mediocre, then we're telling the wrong story. If we're satisfied with it. Because in God's story, he takes a church that is pretty flawed. I mean, you look at the church's history, we've messed some stuff up this week. We don't claim, like and I don't mean just the grove, I mean the church in a universal sense. We don't claim perfection. And yet God does all the work in covering that distance. And so in a marriage, if we want to tell the story of God in our marriage, we do all the work to cover the distance. We don't demand that they change. We demand that we forgive them. Don't you wish there were five steps now? <laughs> I wanted to, just for a second, talk about how if you, need, if you want a new marriage, you don't need a new spouse. You need to be a new spouse. You let Jesus change you. And then you let Jesus worry about changing your spouse. You don't pray, hey God, fix them. You pray, hey God, fix me, build me, forgive me, enable me to cover any distance that needs to be covered. Because when you get married, you're not picking someone to fight, you're picking someone to serve for the rest of your life. When I do, I, I, when I do marriages, I, I do premarital counseling sometimes, and I sit down and I say, so, is this the person you want to serve forever? Like forever. Like if they're moody, tough. You're serving them. And if they're a slob, tough. You've chose them. It's awesome to see their face. They're like, what? No, we're in, we're in love, James. <laughs> right. You're in love. <laughs> oh my gosh. You know? <laughs> now if you're young, I know. But for the rest of us, <laughs> we know at some point, if this thing's going to work, it takes a lot of hard work. Because it's actually a profound mystery. Now, some people have talked to me. They've said, hey, I'm kind of checking out. I'll see you after Easter. I'm single. Enjoy your whole marriage thing. Um, I'll be back at Easter. And, and you can enjoy that. I want to encourage you, if, if you. We've got people here who are single. Uh, people who are married to unbelieving spouses. And so you're kind of single at church. Um, people who are... Uh, older single, younger single. There's middle schoolers in the room with us, right? 
you're probably not married. Uh, <laughs> there is this... <laughs> There is this kind of thing that, and, and churches do this, and, and, and it bugs me. Uh, a lot of people aren't married, and yet churches assume everyone is, like, you know, the Anglo-Saxon family with 2.4 children driving a minivan, right? Like, but I don't think that's what life is anymore. If you're single, I have these things I want to talk about that if you're single, um, I have put them on the screen because they're actually really, really important because uh, we get a little bit of pushback I get a little bit of pushback, and, uh, and, I, and I want you to, to know that I actually think this is true. This series is really about biblical relationships. The most difficult relationship you'll ever have is your spouse, right? Um, the thing is, that's true for your spouse, too. Uh, and so this is, being married means I'm choosing one person to serve over all others forever. But when we have relationships, there are biblical principles to teach us relationships and teach us how to be friends. That's, next week this is what we're talking about. Being friends because some of us don't know the Bible says anything about that. We have life groups and our life groups, the questions won't be just for married people. Alright? When you're in your life group and I know some people are nervous about this. I'm in a life group with some married people, some single or some it's complicated, right? Uh, these life groups are life-giving and so they're not just, uh, okay, sit down and be married. Sometimes the life groups are going to split men and women, all right? Uh, sometimes, the, and there won't be a time when the life groups get into couples and the singles have to sit there, all right? And uh, I need you to know, that's not ever going to happen, all right? Um, 90, let me just back up while we're at this. This week I had to go to a pastor's retreat. It was a pastor's and wives retreat. It was Monday for Tuesday, Wednesday, right? And uh, it's a great time, but I don't get to bring my wife. We have kids with schedules and everything else, you know, so I go out there by myself. And every year I come home angry <laughs> because I don't bring my wife with me. That's why. I mean, we could go there and Moses himself could give the sermon, you know, and Billy Graham could give me a back rub while he's talking. <laughs> and I'd be angry, all right? I'd be like, this is stupid. I can't believe we're doing this. I'm just angry. All right? And it makes me even angrier when I see couples together because I'm sitting there by myself. They do communion. Husbands and wives do communion. And I'm like, yeah, thanks a lot, jerk. You know? And, and I'm saying this to my friends, right? To like friends, people I love, and I'm just angry. So uh, we won't do things that are awkward in our life groups. We won't do things that make people feel upset in their life groups. They're going to be life-giving groups. Uh, now, three. 93% of single people will get married. So if you're single, uh, especially if you're in middle, high school, college, if you're a young single, we want to set you up so you can find a good spouse. Now, if you're single and you're here, and you're looking, this is a good place to look. Because we're going to set them up. All right? We're going to give you a way to have a conversation, okay? So, uh, you know, we'll do communion later and you'll be able to walk around and take a look. And, uh, <laughs> four, we want to, it's real. I expect Christians to marry Christians, and so I'm going to help you out with that. Um, number four, uh, it'll help you to counsel others. And, and this is whether you're married or not. You're going to have friends that have a hard time in their marriage. And being able to say, here's what the Bible says, and here's how I want to pray for you, 
can actually bring life to your friends in a really, really meaningful ways. All right? Five. We're going to walk through some things that will help you evaluate your family of origin issues, maybe some idols that exist in your life. We're going to talk about uh, sins uh, or your dependence or independence or interdependence problems that way. Uh, we're going to bring up these issues. And these issues aren't just for married people. These issues are for everybody. All right? Six. We're going to talk about sin. Sin that you've committed or sin that maybe has been committed against you. And this can happen whether you're married or you're single. And so this is applicable, all right? And we're going to talk about how to deal with sin you've committed or how to deal with sin that's been committed against you, all right? Finally, this is most important, and I want you to... This, I'm not just throwing this out there. Jesus lived life as a single person. His whole life. And so if you want to be more like Jesus, being single might actually be an advantage to you. And I don't say, this is what the Bible teaches. Jesus was a single person, and the Bible says he lived a full and perfect life. Which means, if you're a single person, you won't be complete someday when you finally meet Mr. or Mrs. Wright. Or Mr. and Mrs. Good enough, it's getting late, right? <laughs> you will be complete when you realize that your feeling complete is based on your relationship with Jesus, not based on your relationship with another human being. Sin destroys relationships between human beings really fast. But your relationship with God. God has done a tremendous amount of work to provide for that. And so if you're single, don't check out. Don't say, I'll see you. Don't say, I'm not going to join a life group because it'll be awkward. All right? If it is, it's because of the married couples in your group. It's not because of the group. All right? Or if it is, it's because you feel that or it's something you're putting on yourself and we want to free you from that. Does that make sense? So if you're single and you're here, I want you to know over the next eight weeks, I'm talking to you and I'm talking with you. The married people here need a lot of help. The single people have a lot of hope. <laughs> All right? And I really do mean that. Then I think and I believe that Jesus offers full life regardless of whether you're married or single. So I want to encourage